30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard In December 2017, I walked into my office holiday party and was struck by a vision. She was sitting in front of a silver typewriter, wearing a blue tuxedo, and when I approached and asked what was going on, she cheerfully replied, I'm your poet for the evening. Can I write you a haiku? We ended up bantering for a bit, but I walked away without receiving my poem. It wasn't until the end of the night that I approached the poet once more, this time to ask for a poem, with her phone number on the back. That poet, Lisa Ann Markison, is now my fiancé. She runs Ars Poetica, an international poetry agency representing over 35 poets and artists who, among other things, write custom poems for guests at events. Specializing in haiku, Lisa Ann, or L.A. Marks if you want to get fancy, has written thousands of 17-syllable wonders for guests on the topic of their choosing. I've had the good fortune to sit alongside her while she does so, and the process is magic incarnate. Escaping the one-way flow of entertainment production and consumption we normally experience in this hyper-mediated world, the on-demand poem creates a rare form of mutual interaction. The guest is lured in by the vintage typewriter, then engaged to supply a topic, which can be anything at all, from write a poem about my dog, to can you do one about skyscrapers having sex? This seed is then nurtured, quickly and efficiently, by the poet into a haiku, which even for the non-creative types can be read and counted confirming that, yes, a poem was indeed delivered. The results of this engagement are dramatic to say the least. People scream, people cry, people get the poems tattooed on their skin. It is such a rare and wonderful experience to have an artist look into your soul and produce a tangible takeaway, a metered memento of the truth they found within you, that I'm delighted to share this art with you all now as together, we learn how to write haiku. Well, hello, Lisa Ann. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Ritual Space. It looks so much like my apartment. It looks a lot like your apartment. <laughs> What's our magic word going to be? Minimalism. Great. One, two, three. Minimalism. Minimalism. Now we're going to talk about a minimalist form of poetry today. Mm, yes. What would that be? Well, haiku, I guess we can call it, even though the American or Western version is not so closely related to the traditional Japanese form of haiku. But oh, what's the for difference? lack of a better word, we can call it haiku. Uh, you know, haiku started to evolve like almost a thousand years ago and it reached its more modern recognizable form about 500 years ago. And in ancient Japan, it 
developed from a basically like an exquisite corpse style party game mm. called Renga, where you know drunk guys sharing sake would pass a scroll around and each write a few verses alternating back and forth and uh it slowly was refined down and down to the 17 syllable format how many terrible ones do you think there were like you know we've 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 preserved the best ones from history but how much shitty poetry was written by a bunch of drunk dudes that are just like falling leaves in a river more sake i don't know i do know that for a long time it was kind of um known as a sort of like crude and body party game so Mm. i would say there definitely were a lot that were like nsfw probably more like they were more like jokes the original Um, sexting well maybe not sexting because it was a bunch of dudes right but it was like the original like locker room talk gotcha yeah yeah (laughs) um and i and i wonder grab them by the falling peach blossom oh i don't it's very fitting unfortunately but but i hope not i hope maybe i like to think of them as like not like a bunch of japanese trumps sitting around with beautiful calligraphy pens but i don't know what life was like back then i'd have a tendency to kind of like nostalgize the past Mm -hmm. uh and i you know i'm working on it um i do wonder how fast they would write because one of the things i'm known for is being very fast at writing haiku especially in like high pressure high volume situations high stakes haiku yeah high stakes haiku high impact haiku um and i wonder if in fact i have written more haiku than any of them ever did because like did they ever sit and time themselves churning them out but if it's a party game, you don't like I've yeah, but I'm traumatized from playing Scrabble with stoners that take forever to stare at their letters and make a move. If you're trying to drink sake and hang out and someone's like just excruciatingly like meditating on the details of their poem, you're just like, come on, keep it going. Well, I, I think time was different back then, too, though, you know, mm. and you see that in some of the ancient Japanese haiku, there was a lot more time for introspection and contemplation in a way that i don't know if we could ever even fathom that's true there wasn't fast casual yeah exactly no fast nothing yeah so um yeah i think there were probably some really bad ones yeah so it's evolved since then Mm -hmm. and what happened 500 years ago what was the the evolution that took place um well basho was the first like really respected revered haiku master who sort of evolved the form out of like the dirty like essentially like the comedy seller vibe Mm -hmm. and into the more highbrow area where it could become like um something shared in the royal courts and something where there would be like university competitions and publications something that wouldn't be scrawled on a bathroom wall exactly it went from graffiti for a good time call basho to um hear ye hear ye thou art mine he was he was he was the banksy of the haiku scene he elevated it and brought it into a more okay (laughs) i i get now why everyone gets like these cringy moments when they talk to you because it's like you you bring this different perspective that no one has heard about their art form and it's like 
it's almost like a record scratch or like a chalkboard, like a like a nail on a chalkboard of like your whole understanding of what you do. So it's it's going to take Yeah, I'll get used to it. <laughs> That's what people tune into the podcast for. They they all love the the You're nail like the on a chalkboard sound of my of voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can you can fling that right back at me and call me the the Bill Maher of magical beans. Yeah. I will. I think it works. Now I get exactly what you're trying to describe. So please, please ignore my interruptions and uh, continue forth with. No, no, it's not an interruption because it's actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like it's just something that totally derails my thought process when, mm-hmm. when, because that's like, it would be like if I was like driving a train and then someone like jumped on the roof of the train opened the hatch looked in and said like where are your wings mm, that would be that would be disorienting yeah and then you wake up yeah exactly it does okay. sound like one of my dream sequences so we've got basho oh yeah who and may then, or may not be the banksy of the haiku scene but he brought it to a new level and brought mm-hmm. it to the courts and was was he, he was successful in his lifetime yeah definitely he was totally revered he had like this huge following he always was very humble and didn't like become this really fancy guy he lived in a shack with like a small banana tree outside and I actually got to visit his house or you know the place where his little shack used to be uh, when I visited Japan a couple years ago and it was definitely one of the most kind of like spiritual homage pilgrimage moments Mm. that I've had in my haiku career and um but yes, he was very successful and, and very, very respected. And he published a ton of books. And one of the forms that I think is really interesting that I have explored the least is um, High Bun, which he would write these awesome travel stories about his wanderings throughout the whole country. And, you know, there's four islands and they're it's quite a large expanse in different um, different types of climates and stuff. And so he would go traveling all around and write these stories where he would share like a normal travel narrative that would be punctuated with haiku contemplating those moments mm. and i would love to write a story in that style someday hi bun mm-hmm. how cool so 500 years basho's killing it bring it to the next level 500 years later how did you get into haiku well, it's not like I can say that I'm the first person to bring the art of haiku to the Western world. Who was? It's not 100% uh, clear, but there was actually um, a few scholars in the 1800s that were sort of like spreading the word about haiku and getting kind of into it. But E.E. E. Cummings was one of the first big names in poetry who got to explore and experiment with haiku in like the ni- 19-teens. Mm-hmm. Oh, but so then what happened to me? Right, of course. So I was born in 1912. (laughs) You look uh, great for your age. Thank you so much. I put period blood on my face to keep my skin fresh. Wow, what a fun health health tip. (laughs) Sorry, that's a joke. (laughs) Oh, I I heard about that recently and I definitely want to try it. Um, But, you know, I can't really like report on that yet. Yeah. Uh, I started writing haiku when I was like 11 or 12 years old um grew up in Sacramento California uh hidden gem go visit and 
was exposed to a lot of different cultures. I was lucky enough to be one of those late 80s babies that went through early primary school without having um, all arts education eliminated from our existence. I know that now public school kids don't get to do any art um, anywhere anymore. It's such a tragedy. It's really tragic. And actually, when I found out about it, because my mom is a public school teacher, uh, I like... I remember very clearly I collapsed to the floor and started bawling when I heard about this because it was like I had this weird tidal wave flashback of all of the moments of art in my childhood that I could I could feel them like being washed away in like a future me life. And that was really scary because I definitely don't have like exciting, beautiful memories of standardized testing or PE or, or physical education. Yeah. Actually I kind of like PE sometimes, but, um, which who knows if do they even get that? Do they do it like once a week now? But anyway, I digress. I just Uh, think it's always crazy when you watch movies from like the eighties or TV shows about the eighties and there's the rope, like you have to like climb the rope in PE and and it's like, like, do it. It's like, that was not a thing by the time that I was in school, I would not have been able to climb the rope. No, I'm sure that like no one could to climb a rope like that. It's just, First of all, my hands hurt just thinking about it from yeah. like the rope burn factor. But um, I started writing haiku when I was a kid. And there were actually a lot of Japanese kids in my school and in my class. Uh, there's, I don't know if you know this. I don't like tell people this all day, every day. But Sacramento is statistically the nation's most diverse and integrated metropolitan area in the whole country. So I just, I always attribute the unbelievable blessing of coming from a very diverse cultural melting pot uh, of why I have always pursued international understanding and different perspectives from around the world in my, my work. So haiku from childhood, for sure. First haiku that I made into an art piece that my parents kept was like age 11 or 12. I remember that too, because um, like you had to learn syllables, and then like haiku was like an, I, I forget if, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. If they teach you syllables, and then you write haiku, or you're learning haiku, and then they have to teach you about syllables in the process. Yeah, people definitely like clap it out when yeah, they're doing, doing the. I remember having like trouble with it, and I'd have to do the thing where you put your hand underneath your jaw, and oh. you're like counting whenever it hits. That was real like rudimentary level. Yeah. <laughs> It was not I, p- pursuing poetry and and writing creatively for the sake of writing was never a big priority for me. I did love to write and always got high marks in creative writing and that type of thing. But uh, I really didn't come back to writing in that way until I got interested in like songwriting. Um, as like a late teen and then loved writing songs and you know I experimented with like writing screenplays and plays and I I ended up just doing a ton of writing throughout college and was really interested in becoming a travel writer writing some high bun exactly exactly but uh as I graduated college I was kind of like oh like that can't be a career. Like, so I got into international relations and I studied to go into diplomacy. But um, fast forward a couple years, diplomacy was just like totally not the right path for me because of how structured it is and how hierarchical the structures are. So I 
started pursuing art again. I kind of just like got bounced back in that direction due to just feeling so dissatisfied with the more standard route. And in like fall of 2012 was when I started writing haiku performatively on typewriters. How did haiku come back into your life in that way? Oh, well, it was, again, I there's a theme in the life of L.A. Marx that is kind of like take the opportunities that come your way and just like go with them, you know? And I was offered a position doing social media promotions and events and stuff for a really popular sushi chef in Washington, D.C. And I jumped on that opportunity because I've always loved sushi and Japanese culture. And I had been doing a lot of like improv writing and poetry and songwriting and like little rap things with a lot of friends and working with an arts organization on events. And so all these different factors kind of like came together and made me think, oh, like this sushi chef is doing an event to open his new fast casual sushi place. Wouldn't it be fun to do haiku on demand at the sushi place that would be so thematically appropriate and so fun and interactive and so that was really just a it was very logical like filling a hole one plus one equals two kind mm-hmm. of thing so what tell me about that experience the, so you've you've had the we idea. have some of the poems and they were so bad actually you know they were really uninspired i guess maybe is the right word they were very much a like the old form the ancient ancient original form of haiku they were very like silly and crass and just like off the cuff and very kind of like this is a sentence that happens to be 17 syllables let's just bang it out (laughs) ah so like like it's a it's a single sentence rather than having a a more nuanced just yeah not very very little nuance precisely and much more sarcastic tongue-in-cheek vibe and then how did you evolve from that? Hmm. Have you? I've definitely evolved in a major, major way um, for so many different reasons. But I think practice is just a major thing. Like you you don't stay satisfied riding a bicycle with training wheels. You know, like you want to push yourself and try new things. You want to try new thematics. You want to... Like you don't want to make the same recipe over and over again. You want to try a new recipe. So I think it was for my own satisfaction and also to explore what type of reactions I could elicit in the people that receive poems written by me. Yeah. Well, I've seen you in action writing poems. I think that's one of the most interesting parts about it is you write poetry at events Mm -hmm. and guests come over and unlike almost all other art which is just consumed in one direction like we go sit in a movie theater and the movie is what the people wanted to make a movie about and we just consume it this is fully interactive where you're soliciting a topic or an idea from the individual and then writing a poem for them on the spot how what have you learned about people through that process we are much more alike than we are different i think that that's something that I actually did not understand very well seven years ago. Almost everyone wants a poem about love. Is like, that the, that's the top topic? Like if I truly had to break it down percentage-wise, it's probably 40% of people talk about love. The vast 
far and away the largest chunk of poem topics is love. Uh, and a lot of people want poems about just life. Like there is a change in my life or I want a change in my life or new beginnings or these just totally universal themes. It's And I think that's partially about how similar that people are. And it's partially about how we perceive the role of poetry in society. That's what I was wondering is that there's this idea of poetry, you know, the romantic poets, it's this flowery thing. And so no one would walk up to a poet and be like, oh, I'm having car problems. Write a poem about my car problems. They're like, oh, no, it should be about love or Well, some people do have more pragmatic and funny topics like that. And I do actually recommend for people to be as specific as possible because you know, to take love as the example, it's the largest thing in the whole world. It's the the most complex and multifaceted theme that there is. And so I want to know, are you in love? Are you looking for love? Are you feeling love for yourself? Are you feeling love for friends or family? Uh, if you're looking for love, are are you dating? Have you put yourself out there? You know, we can go deeper and more specific as we go. What is some of the, like, do you have any weird topics that you remember that people have given you that were shocking or out there or stuck with you in some way? Nothing is immediately coming to mind as so shocking. Uh, oh, well, I can say one that was very shocking. The word shocking is a perfect way to describe because uh, we were doing an event for a very serious, dry kind of financial company. And, and that's, what's kind of beautiful about what I do is it really does apply to any sort of environment. You don't have to be like a creative poetry crowd, but anyway, so people had taken a little while to warm up and by a little while, I mean a few drinks to warm up. And then all of a sudden, three drinks in, everyone was like, we've got to get poems. And they were like kind of bombarding us and they were so, so into it. And this one guy was like, can I really ask you about anything? And I was like, yeah. He's like, I want to I want to tell you something, but it's like not appropriate. And I was like, yeah, man, tell me, like, go for it. I'm not going to tell anyone. And he's like, I'm fucking the boss's daughter. exactly the kind of thing that you want to memorialize in hard evidence that you could accidentally leave around yeah well luckily the haiku is very evocative and so it doesn't need to um be so explicit necessarily but yeah that was really shocking um one of the things that always concerns me and comes up relatively regularly is people not trusting themselves enough to think of their topic and, uh. and feeling just putting a lot of pressure on themselves. And so I do try to be very, very sensitive with those people because I can't imagine what it must feel like to have a something about the way that your life is set up where you feel that you don't even really kind of have the comfort with yourself to be able to just say a random word to a stranger when there's no, um, there's there's no strings attached. There's no bad thing that could possibly happen. There's to just this. the self-imposed pressure of like, I have to get it right. And the fact that it's completely almost. open mm-hmm. is terrifying. It's yeah. it's the ultimate blank page. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting type of person. I remember doing improv and some people 
you know, at Improv 101 thrive and are doing great and like can't wait to be jokey and get in the mix. And then other people, it's like, all right, say a color. Um, um, I don't know. Pass. No, no, no. Just like a color. It can be any color at all. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. Like, like red, you know, just say a color. Okay, red. <laughs> don't don't say the one that I think. And it's like the teacher has to work with them for like ten minutes, and finally yeah. they're like, um, um, blue, and everyone's like, yay! <laughs> yeah, exactly. You exactly. did it, and we're done with that. Okay, great. Moving on. And the whole class has to take a collective deep breath of relief, right? Because you feel that person's pain. Oh yeah. And you know, in that case, when you're another student with a, a student that's struggling, it could probably be frustrating because it's like, wow, I wish I could have gotten my turn instead of having to watch you have to have your thing. But with me, because it's almost more like I'm a practitioner, I get to just be totally dedicated to that person and like helping them through it. And so I actually don't uh, shy away from those moments. I like those moments. Having to do so much interaction with people in that regard, have you developed any techniques or specific little tricks that you do to help coax a topic out of them? Well, I don't want to give away all my secrets, but... Um, it's okay. Not very many people listen to the podcast. Okay. I don't think that's true. <laughs> uh, eye contact is very, very helpful. Uh, and just really... Stare them down. It, it just bore holes <laughs> in their skull. I think silence is more powerful than we think um, or than we're led to believe in American society. So asking the question and then not immediately being like, you know, like, and then like, and but like, here's an example to, to, to ask the question and then say, you know, give it a beat. I love the idea right now of someone walking up and feeling awkward and you're like, what's your topic? And they're like, I don't know. And then you just silently stare at them until they produce it. Well, the idea is not to not respond when they say, I don't know, but to to say, if they said, I don't know, be like, you can tell me anything that's interesting to you right now. And then hold that silence instead of just rambling on, right? Uh, another good technique for getting a topic is to literally just say out loud, there's no pressure here. You probably feel, you know, almost like negotiation style techniques. It's like you probably feel really put on the spot. You probably feel quite nervous. Um, I totally get that. Think about how hard it must be for me. You just have to think of the topic and then I have to write a whole poem about it. Mm, switching the focus and taking mm -hmm. the burden a little and, bit. And, you know, making a little joke so that they can just take a deep breath and not because, you know, it's like in, when you were a school kid, it's like you get called on and then you don't know the answer and then it's just like this dead silence in the room and everyone's just staring at you and like the longer that you have to wait the more that you definitely are never going to be able to answer this question so like letting them know that it's not that situation yeah. what there's um, no wrong answer do you get people where they kind of give you the generic topic first and then the the real truth comes like a little bit later or like oh yeah one great story of that was actually a woman that r refused to receive a poem at first she was just like oh no i don't have time and blew it off wow don't have time for a 17 syllable poem well what a busy schedule i really don't i don't judge anyone when it comes to that kind of thing like i she wasn't in the mood and I don't try to push it on anyone if they are not in the no, mood. No, I hear you. That's Which fair. Actually, I, I do the same thing when I'm subway wizarding that I'm like, if you don't want to talk to me, I'm not going to come over and sit down and be like, why not? Yeah. 
it's and that's what's so great about what you do and what we do it's like an event planner can book us for their event and know that no one is going to be in that weird situation where the magician comes over and yells in their face like stop talking to your friend look at this magic trick the person comes over at their own volition and has the interaction that they want to have uh so the question was oh the, the truthful topic right so first she blew it off and I just gave a tiny tidbit to her. I was like, okay, if you change your mind, we're right here. And it just takes one minute. And something something shifted in her and she came back over herself and was just like, oh, I don't know what I want it to be about. It's probably nothing. And I was like, well, your jewelry is gorgeous. Like, what's the story of your jewelry? Because she was wearing like athleisure, but then like this like unbelievable beautiful dramatic like turquoise jewelry and then as soon as I asked her a question about something that she had a really strong attachment to it was like opening the floodgates and she told us all about her life and all the things that had been bothering her that day and all the stresses that she had had and all just because I asked her about her jewelry you know so that's an example of someone who wants to be tough but then they right underneath the surface have a lot to share. And it's so interesting, like how like those probing techniques of not putting the pressure, not putting them on the spot, not being antagonistic, but just being like, let me ask you a little question about something that obviously you put on this jewelry and I'm paying attention to you. And that just gives them permission to kind of unfold a little bit. Yeah. The art of attention. It's a real thing. What are some of the best reactions you've gotten to poems? Definitely the best reaction is when people get their poem tattooed on their body. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and that's happened to me quite a few times that have that I have been tagged in on Instagram. So I'm just like, how many people have gotten their poem tattooed on them that like didn't tag me, you know? Uh, and there's one in particular that I really want to see. I wrote a poem for a man who incorporated the words into a full back piece with like illustrations and like a whole scene Whoa. and I haven't gotten to see that yet and I really want to see but very recently two girls uh, that are sisters I wrote them a poem that was just like a very funny cute little sister bonding poem and they went on vacation together and both got matching tattoos on their arms of their poem and tagged me and if you go to our Instagram you can look at it it's on like a featured deck on our Mm. Instagram stories words made flesh yeah maybe (laughs) so biblical so from where you started when you were saying that you were writing sassy, crude poems and now you've written, how many poems do you think you've written in the last? Well, I haven't done a proper years? calculation of like the the whole span of my poetic career, but, you know, we write a poem in 60 to 120 seconds at an event. Um, the uh, amount of events that we've done each year has doubled more or less each year. And I... I have to have written at least 100,000 poems. There's no way it's been less than that. And we are actually starting to count the amount of poems that we write as a company. Um, Starting this week, actually, the 1st of October, we launched a project where we're going to be counting how many poems we write worldwide and plant a tree for every poem that we write. Oh, I love that. Thank you. One poem, one tree, one tattoo. Well... I mean, we're not going to get a tattoo of every single poem. We, that would be a little crazy. But yes, we are going to plant a tree for every poem. And we're doing it with a nonprofit partner, One Tree Planted. 
I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so after writing 100,000 poems. Give or take. Give or take. Could be more. What makes a good haiku? Good haiku should, even if it's not exactly 17 syllables, should be very short. Um, doesn't it have to be exactly 17? Uh, no, it really doesn't. I generally stick to 17 when people are requesting specifically haiku for their event, but I do a lot more events where we do more free verse and all sorts of forms of poetry and all sorts of literary arts in general. So like the 17 syllable restriction is more about the satisfaction of the guest. Where did that come from? The 17 syllables? Is that the original Japanese? It's from the original Japanese and it was kind of like scientifically decided that the 17 syllables was the most pleasing oratory cadence based on the Japanese language, which is another reason why we really don't need to like stick to closely to it because the way that English language works is different than Japanese language. So like if you look at 17 syllables in Japanese, you're saying more like 10 syllables in English because Japanese syllables are counted much like longer. Hmm. The example that I always use is like if we were going to say ice cream in English language, how many syllables? Two. If you were to say ice cream in Japanese language, like breaking down the way that they count syllables, it's like I, sa, ka, ri, mu. So it's five. Wow. Okay. So a Japanese haiku would translate, if you were to do like really specific, um, like liter- literal translation, it would be like morning bird at my window. Hello. Hello. Yeah. That, that would be closer to what it would translate specifically to. So keep it short, stick to the 17 syllables, or don't. Short is best. Um, Obviously, you don't want it to have it be on just one line. I do like three lines in general. That's a good rule of thumb. 575, right? 575, but again, you can give or take. The crucial thing, though, is that it can have an open and a close, have a setup and a punchline, have a situation and a twist. It needs to have like an A and a B. A really you can write a very funny and crowd-pleasing poem that is just the one idea that takes up about 17 syllables that's fine but like a next level up from that is to have two ideas that are juxtaposed uh in ancient japanese haiku you should have a seasonal reference and i don't I don't necessarily encourage people to stick to that when they're writing their own haiku. But what I would say is like, okay, so if the seasons were one of like the most crucial universal influences on ancient Japanese life, then like maybe how we can modernize that rule is that your poem should not just be about the thing, the mundane thing, but it should find a way to relate to a more universal theme and have a lens on it as opposed to just a completely literal context. Gotcha. Did they write, when when they had to do the seasons, was it you had to write about whatever season you were in, or you just had to have a seasonal reference, even if it was winter? Want you want me to read fall? you an example? That would be wonderful. So one of my poets, who's actually also a wellness practitioner um, out in Los Angeles, Dina Hyatt. Oh, she's been a guest on the podcast. Oh, yes. You probably remember her from the how to be in your body yep, great episode. episode. Um, she gave me this 
seasonal haiku book recently and it was really nice um it's broken up by the seasons so i'll read an autumn okay haiku by basho perfect at nara temple freshly scented chrysanthemums and ancient images so why is this a seasonal reference because the chrysanthemums bloom in autumn nice yeah i love it so much do you want to hear another one let's hear one for each season uh oh okay that's a fun idea Oh, this is a good one. This is one that's very relatable today by Busson, another wonderful, very popular haikuist. My very bone ends made contact with the icy quilts of deep December. That's a summer one, right? (laughs) (laughs) That was winter. And then let's do spring. Some of them are very funny. Like, they're, they're humor is something that I really, really appreciate. And here's Issa, who's actually not known for being funny. He's known for being a little more moody and actually a great painter as well. But um, this, is a, this is a funny one. Felicitations. Still, I guess this year, too, will prove only so-so. <laughs> I think he comes off also as moody in that. Yes, that's true. But, like, funny. Funny moody. That was spring, obviously. And then let's do. Spring is such a hard season to be grumpy in. That's so funny. Yeah. Well, I think that was very early spring, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I guess that part. When you're like, I feel like we get we get very cranky in the early spring. Hmm. Well, this is beautiful. The moon becomes a very strong seasonal reference in summertime. He wades the river carrying the girl and sees carrying the moon. You see the way that it's like two ideas. Yeah. You weren't expecting, oh, wait, the, who's carrying the moon? That's by Shiki. Well, that was lovely. Thank you. I liked I liked our tour around the year in, yeah. in four short poems. Now let's talk spells because we like to end with a spell. And we also like to have minimalism because we like to think about what's the least that someone can do to bring the magic of haiku into their life maybe going a little bit beyond just write a freaking haiku people but um some way that they could use haiku in a magical way to transform their own reality and make it slightly better oh well, one way that i do is i have a bunch of haiku written around the house to kind of enrich and ritualize like daily living mm-hmm. um but maybe it should be more complex than that uh, i think that sounds great Okay, yes, I think we can do that because a lot of times, other than getting a tattoo of the poem, what people say is that always makes me feel like it's a good compliment for receiving their poem is I'm going to put this in my office. I'm going to put this on my mirror. I'm going to put this on my fridge, you know? So um, the magical spell could be to think about one area of your life that needs a little extra boost. Uh, maybe you've been trying to eat better or maybe you've been trying to just like feel better about yourself when you get out of bed in the morning or maybe you've been feeling like um, when you leave for work every day you've not been in the best mood or uh, maybe you want to keep your house cleaner whatever so like some area of your life that also corresponds to a physical place think where you could use a reminder 
uh, or like a little bit of inspiration and, and where that could be. So like by the door, on the fridge, in the mirror when you're brushing your teeth, someplace where you're going to see it all the time exactly and it can be like so small right so if you're if you have like a lot of roommates and you don't want to be like too awkward about it you can make it really really tiny but you need to be able to see it or even in your wallet right Mm -hmm. like if you don't have pocket poem pocket poem in your pocket um that's really sweet or at your office or ooh, it could be cool if you wanted to be more banksy like you could like make a little graffiti of it yeah definitely Um, do some crimes yeah do high high crimes do high crimes haiku crimes um Haiku, haiku, haiku rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so decide on the place. And then when you write the poem, you should um, put yourself in the poet state before you do it. So to make it a little more magical, don't just, you know, sit down in the normal way and just type it in a note on your cell phone. Get a beautiful ish piece of paper, something nice that you can put up. Uh, maybe rip off a piece of an old greeting card that you don't need a piece of, or maybe fa- go to my pa- favorite paper store, paper source, and buy a little card, something that will Back be... of that wedding RSVP invite that's been on your fridge. And oh just... my God, there's so many of those on our fridge. <laughs> uh, of course, I always love your influence of lighting a candle or doing some small ritual gesture to set the stage for what you're going to do. So, you know, smudge the air or light a candle or light some incense or smoke a joint if you're into that kind of thing. I know I'm not. mm -hmm. And, um, or even just like put on some nice music and just get yourself in the zone. I call it the poet state and think about that thing that you want to upgrade a little bit or inspire yourself on and let a small minimal loving phrase come out of it or an idea and it doesn't have to fit 17 syllables at first you can just kind of like let it flow a little bit and kind of freestyle and then refine it down find that one little nugget of a a good five or seven syllable phrase and then build around that and when it's done put it up in the place so it can inspire you a little bit and be with you and it might evolve and change in in meaning as it's as it's up there as you read it again and again Mm. beautiful thank you lisa oh thank you Devin, for having me on this podcast is ritual for more of lisa ann's work visit arspoetica.us and for more of the poetic magic that is this podcast is a ritual, visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual, where just like how each poem requires the seed of a topic, our magic requires that small sacrifice of time, energy, and perhaps money to help our magic grow and expand and blossom into the universe-altering flower that resides in each of us. So, To end with a little bit of flowery words, here's one final haiku to take you into that sweet night. The magic found you, but you turned it into light, brightening this day. (laughs) 